0: Hello, everyone. I am very excited to welcome you to today's discussion about some of the key cases before the Supreme Court this term. My name is Laura Safty, and for the next hour, we'll be speaking with two leaders in Supreme Court litigation, Tom Goldstein and Kevin Russell, attorneys with the Goldstein and Russell Law Firm, and authors for SCOTUS Law. Because of the number of viewers we have today, we can't have two-way audio, so we'll ask that if you do have any questions, which we encourage you to share uh, for Tom and Kevin, please tweet us at case text or email us at support at case text.com. Uh, You should see the Twitter handle on the screen here. Um, we'll be monitoring those questions and we'll answer as many as we can. Um, just a note that this program has been approved for one hour of CLE ethics credit uh, in 19 states, including New York, California, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Texas, and others, uh, and credit is pending in the remaining states. To see a list of the states that have been approved for the webinar, Uh, please visit casex.com slash CLE. If you are seeking credit, you must attend the entire webinar. Your attendance will be tracked through the GoToWebinar application that's hosting the program. I'm going to take just a minute to introduce our panelists, um, though I'm sure most of you are very familiar with their work. Tom Goldstein has served as counsel to a party in well over 100 merits cases at the court and has been counsel on more successful petitions for cert over the past decade than any lawyer in private practice. Tom is the founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog, which we appreciate very much, for their valuable commentary and analysis of Supreme Court decisions. Kevin Russell has argued 12 cases, at least per the bio that I've seen most recently, but that might be out of date, uh, in the court, and has served as counsel in 50 others. Kevin has been counsel on more successful petitions for cert in the past decade than any other lawyer in private practice apart from his partner, Tom, who is sitting next to him. Uh, Both Tom and Kevin are instructors in the Supreme Court litigation clinic at Harvard Law School, and both are regular SCOTUSblog contributors. I am extremely honored personally to help host this conversation, along with the American Constitution Society, the Federalist Society, SCOTUSblog, and Case Text. Please join me in welcoming Tom and Kevin. So to get us started, I know there's uh, four or five cases we're hoping to cover, and then we're going to leave some time at the end to talk about some broader trends uh, at the court this term. Um, Tom, do you want to kick us off with Espinoza?
1: Sure. And so what Kevin and I are going to do is cover essentially the second half of the docket of the major cases of the term. Mm -hmm. Of course, we already had part one of uh, our ongoing review of the term, and that's available online. People can look at that earlier video that Sarah Harrington and I did. The first thing that we're gonna do is uh, dive into religion, and we may end up coming back to it later. The biggest religion case of the term is called Espinoza, and it really deals with the intersection between two closely related provisions of the Constitution, the Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause. Uh, which are in some ways in a little bit of tension. One guarantees the right of individuals to the free exercise of religion, but at the same time, it guarantees that the government won't establish a religion. And so the dilemma arises when you're dealing with governmental programs that provide aid to religious organizations. And that is, is that aid necess- doesn't need to be provided on a non-discriminatory basis, and therefore... Uh, allow for the free exercise of religion, but if it does that, does it in turn establish a governmental religion in some sense, and where do you draw that kind of line? Uh, The case arises in a recurring context in the law, and that is scholarship programs for religious schools. So this is, uh, the particular context is around 40 different states have state constitutional provisions that prohibit the state government from giving aid to a church or to a religious school. And about 20 states have programs that provide for uh, aid and scholarships that can end up going to religious schools. And the question is, how do the state constitutional provisions interact with the state law, and how do the state constitutional provisions arrive with, or, uh, interact with the federal constitution? So here you have a program in the state of Montana and it says that there'll be a $150 tax credit for anyone who contributes money to certain private uh, uh, scholarship programs. Now those scholarship programs can be used at any private school in the state of Montana, but most of the private schools in Montana are religious schools. So if I were to donate $100, the state would match it and then the The scholarship uh, funds under the state law would be distributed to the various schools, which would in turn give them to students. So a challenge was brought to the Montana program, alleging that it violated the Montana State Constitution's prohibition on providing aid that would go to directly or indirectly to a religious school. And it does seem kind of on its face that this would be a form of aid. It would be used for the educational programs in the religious school, and the Montana Supreme Court agreed. And it said that it was unconstitutional. But the the state Supreme Court said, well, look, if we were to recognize that there would be a problem just saying that the aid could only go to non-religious schools, and so what it did is it struck down the aid program entirely so that the scholarship matching funds are not available uh, in any form for any private school. Uh, the case uh, was then petitioned by the plaintiffs, who are the parents of some students in the schools and religious schools, to the Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case. And it arises against a relatively recent case uh, of the court called Trinity Lutheran. So in Trinity Lutheran, the court considered a program that provided for uh, aid to redo school playgrounds. And the state in Trinity Lutheran had said that that aid couldn't go to a religious school because it would in effect be, you know, the state giving aid to a religious institution directly, it would be establishing a religion. And the Supreme Court said, no, you know, this is uh, really, has nothing to do with religion. We're talking about playgrounds and playground surfaces. Uh, And the Supreme Court uh, in invalidating the program in Trinity Lutheran said, but we're not going to decide what the rule would be. Uh, when there would be prohibited discrimination involving actual aid that would advance the religious mission of the institution. Uh, the rubber hit the road, if you will, in the Montana versus Espinosa case, where there the money is really going much more directly to the, the religious schools programs. Uh, and the case has already been argued this term. And in the course of the argument, there were two issues that were discussed principally. One is as is often the the case when you get to the Supreme Court, there's a real discussion of standing and mootness and those sorts of things. And the issues here are that the money that's involved comes from donor, excuse me, comes from the state based on uh, uh, donations that are made by private individuals. And then the scholarship money goes from the state to the schools. But the plaintiffs here are the parents of students. So they're neither people who contribute money that is matched by the state, nor are they, are they the institutions, the schools, that receive the state money. And so the question was, uh, asked. oral argument, particularly from the more liberal justices that are more hostile to the claims, is there standing on behalf of the parents here? Uh, should the lawsuit instead be brought by the schools or by donors to the program? Uh, the second question that was asked is essentially one of mootness, and that is, well, your claim is one of discrimination. But there is no discrimination now because the way that the state courts resolved this uh, uh, under the state constitution was to prohibit the program entirely. And given that the program doesn't exist anymore so that there isn't, it isn't a situation where uh, money is being given to um, you know, non-religious schools and uh, rather than to religious schools, in the absence of discrimination, is there any constitutional program uh, problem whatsoever Given that everybody agrees under the free exercise clause and the establishment clause that the government could decide not to provide any scholarships at all, um, but in general, it seemed after the oral argument that those claims were go- those questions were going to be resolved in favor of the plaintiffs and the lawsuit was going to go forward. As to the merits of the lawsuit, well, the the backdrop of the plaintiffs' claims uh, are is that these state constitutional provisions, in their view. Are, which are called so-called Blaine Amendments, are rooted in anti-Catholic bigotry, that there was a time in the country where a lot of these state constitutional provisions were added, and it was intended to try and prevent the state from giving aid that would benefit Catholics and Catholic institutions, and that the plaintiffs tell a story about how this is all rooted essentially in religious animus. And in addition, they say that, you know, what you have to do is look at the state constitution, not the result of the application of the state constitution. And the state constitution clearly does discriminate, uh, as between aid to, uh, non-religious schools and to religious schools. The state's arguments, in addition to the ones that I've identified already so far, are, do get to the idea that, look, the state should not be giving money for, that goes to core, uh, Uh, activities of a religious institution, including a religious school, and that's where the action is and uh, where everybody is very, very interested, particularly with respect to the change in the Supreme Court's composition and it becoming even more conservative after Justice Kennedy's retirement, because while the conservative Supreme Court has had an ongoing program to move the law to the right in a variety of areas, it didn't actually get very far when it came to the Free Exercise and Establishment Clause because Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy weren't very active in uh, those areas, unlike a lot of others. But now with uh, Justice Gorsuch and uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the court, it seems more likely that there is more sympathy to the claims of uh, individuals and organizations that want to lower the wall separating church and state and make it more possible for the state to provide aid to institutions broadly and not exclude religious institutions. And that seemed to be where the oral argument was going. It's not entirely clear. Uh, Justice Gorsuch didn't ask many questions. Uh, The Chief Justice uh, did ask questions kind of on both sides, as he often does. But I'd say the betting money is, given that it looks like the Supreme Court will get to the merits of the case, that the court is gonna issue some kind of ruling, that these state constitutional provisions and their application in this kind of context does violate uh, the free exercise clause and that there can't be discrimination in aid programs like this. Now, then questions will arise, well, how far do you go? So, for example, states, of course, fund public education, but they don't fund private religious education. And so where do you draw the line in terms of, okay, you can't discriminate within the body of private schools? And those those arguments will uh, be uh, pushed further and further by religious uh, conservatives to see how far the Supreme Court is willing to go. But Espinoza does shape up as likely being a really landmark decision in the area of religion and that where it is that you uh, identify this balance between the free exercise and establishment clauses.
0: Thank you. That was a really, really good overview. Um, It sounds like your assessment is that the standing issue is likely to be resolved in favor of the plaintiffs. But it definitely struck me when attorneys representing the parents argued in oral argument that the harm that established standing occurred when the Montana Supreme Court issued its decision, you know, quote, mistakenly believing that the state constitution's ban on aid for religious schools was proper under the U.S. Constitution. What do you make of that argument? Can standing be established solely through the ruling of a lower court, even if, for the sake of argument, that ruling did misconstrue the U.S. Constitution?
1: Yeah, I think that it's very likely that the Supreme Court would hold that we look at the state of the law in the state after the state courts are done with it and have construed it. Um, and the way that uh, I'm sorry, you know, in the including the process of how the state courts have construed it, the state of course says you should look at it. The end result here, in which there's no discrimination because the aid program doesn't exist at all. Right. But yes, I think that the justices are going to be willing to look at the application of the state constitutional provision and say that that is in mm-hmm. effect, a form of discrimination that has hurt the students who are represented here by the parents.
0: So let's assume it does get to the merits and and it does go the way that, that you seem to think it's going to go. You know, what would that mean for our understanding of the practical bounds of the separation of church and state if parents, if they essentially a state can be forced to underwrite religious education with taxpayer dollars?
1: Well, of course, the plaintiffs here would say that the state isn't being forced to do anything. It's just uh, in terms of subsidizing religious education or religious institutions, other than to be neutral about it, that if it's going to uh, make a legislative decision, which Montana did to create programs like this, uh, that they have to be available both to religious schools and to non-religious schools. And if the state decided not to have any kind of a program whatsoever, then that would not raise a constitutional question in all likelihood. um, But That doesn't mean that the the case wouldn't be earth-shaking because there are lots and lots of times that the government does provide aid to private organizations, tax breaks and tax credits, uh, direct aid, and all those sorts of things, and does try and stay out of the business of giving money to churches, for example, and church schools. Um, and that is, you know, is the result of a project, you know, dating back several decades of the Supreme Court to identify this wall separating church and state and making it pretty high and pretty firm. Um, so nobody really knows where this would end. Do I personally think that there's a majority in the Supreme Court that would be willing to say that because the state provides public education, it has to fund private religious education. I don't. There might well be, you know, a couple of members of the court who read the constitutional's free, constitution's free exercise uh, provisions so broadly, but I can't imagine that there is uh, a majority on the court for that. I think that there is uh, a desire uh, to get rid of some of the legacy of kind of the Warren Court, early Burger Court's uh, views on the Establishment Clause to make it easier for a state to conclude that it can neutrally give aid. Uh, but I don't think that there's a majority on the court for kind of a radical reworking that equates churches and church schools with public institutions more broadly.
0: So you don't anticipate that this could lead to a decision that would allow, you know, considerable public funding diverted from public education?
1: Well, there's a difference between allow and compel. Do I think it would allow? it? Sure. Do I think that there are state legislatures that are quite conservative, that are quite sympathetic to religious education, that think that religious education when expanded, provides pressure on uh, public schools to perform better, all those sorts of things. So uh, a ruling like this one, which is in effect going to uh, invalidate uh, the state's view that it can't you know treat the public the religious and non-religious institutions differently, nonetheless will I think send a strong signal to more conservative state legislatures that they can give direct aid now, Obviously, or pretty obviously, the state couldn't have a program that's like, we're just going to fund religious schools and not other private schools, because that would be discrimination in the opposite direction. I don't think the Supreme Court would allow that. But in a state like Montana that has principally religious private schools and lots of other states that have lots of religious schools, I think state legislatures will take that signal and provide uh, a lot of aid that so far has been regarded as uh, prohibited as unconstitutional.
0: Thank you. Uh, very, very interesting. We'll obviously watch that closely. Um, Kevin, do we want to turn it over to you and talk about the CFPB case? Sure.
1: So
2: this is a case uh, the question is, does the structure of the Consumer Finance Protection Board uh, violate separation of power principles, uh, principally because it is headed by a single director who is removable uh, by the president uh, only for, quote, inefficiency in the collective duty, malfeasance in office. So he's only removable for cause. The president can't remove him just because he doesn't like what he's doing or he wants to put his own person in. Uh, And the second question on the case is if the court finds that it's unconstitutionally structured, what's the court going to do about that? What's the remedy? So as a bit of background, the CFPB was created in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis uh, after Congress conducted a study and determined Uh, that the uh, consumer protection function of the federal government in this space was too uh, dispersed among a variety of uh, agencies to be effective, and so they consolidated all that power within the CFPB. Uh, It has some kind of quasi-legislative responsibilities. For example, it enforces a law that says it's illegal to engage in unfair, deceptive, or abusive practices uh, with respect to consumer finance. It's a very broad uh, command, and the, the, the CFPB is given the power to interpret it uh, and to issue regulations saying what that means in particular contexts. It also has enforcement authority. It can bring lawsuits. It can conduct investigations, including by uh, sending what are called the Civil Investigative Demand Letters, CIDs, which is one of the things that's at issue in this case, which is similar to a subpoena requiring an, uh, a regulated entity to provide the, the agency information it needs for its investigation. Most importantly for purposes of this case, uh, Congress created uh, it with this single director who has this uh, protection from removal. uh, And in the same sense that there are a number of other independent agencies within the federal government, the Federal Election Commission, for example, uh, whose members are not removable except for cause. Uh, So what happened in this case was the CFPB, uh, which has jurisdiction over Other entities, including uh, consumer debt settlement companies, and they are subject to what's called the telemarketing rule. It's not particularly important for this case to know what that means, but uh, it is a rule that they thought that a particular law firm that was engaging in debt settlement services was violating. And so the the CFPB issued one of these civil investigative demand letters uh, to the uh, law firm, and the law firm firm resisted it, ended up in court. And the law firm uh, said, among other reasons uh, that it didn't have to comply with it, be, was that because it was issued by an agency whose structure violates uh, the U.S. Constitution. The District Court and then later the Ninth Circuit rejected those challenges to its structure. Uh, based The Ninth Circuit based largely on a decision from the D.C. Circuit earlier that had uh, rejected a similar claim, a similar challenge to the structure of the board, uh, which we will return to in a minute. Uh, and then uh, something interesting happened. So while all of this was going on, uh, the, the uh, well, let me back up for a second. So when President Trump was elected, uh, the head of the CFPB was a man named Richard Cordray who had been put in that office by President Obama. And one of the interesting features of the CFPB is that the director serves five-year terms, which guarantees that the director is going to end up uh, spending at least some of his or her time uh, working for a president that didn't appoint him or her, and in this case, uh, Cordray being appointed by a Democrat uh, was not particularly popular with the Trump administration, uh, which wasn't happy uh, that they weren't able to put their own person in. Uh, nonetheless, the CFPB in this particular case uh, went ahead and pursued the, the subpoena or uh, the, the C.I.D. Uh, and defended the constitutionality of its own structure in the lower courts. By the time the case had gotten through the Ninth Circuit, however, uh, two things of relevance happened. One is uh, that Cordray had left and the the Trump administration had put in their own people, who took the position that uh, the law firm was right, that in fact the structure of the CFPB is unconstitutional. And second, uh, once the case uh, got to the Supreme Court level, when the law firm filed a cert petition. Representation decisions decisions in the litigation were taken over by the Solicitor General's Office, which is the unit within the Department of Justice that handles litigation in the Supreme Court on behalf of the federal government. And the Solicitor General took the same position as the new folks at the CFPB uh, and told the Supreme Court, "Yeah, we agree the Ninth Circuit was wrong. The structure of the CFPB is unconstitutional. It uh, and unduly inhibits the president's ability to fire the head of the of the agency uh, at will." Uh, and urged the Supreme Court to take the case. Uh, interestingly, the, the court took the case, even though there wasn't any division in the lower courts over whether on this question. Most of the cases the Supreme Court takes, it takes in order to resolve you know, so-called circuit conflicts, where courts of appeals have disagreed about the the right answer to an important question of federal law. And this is certainly an important question, but there wasn't a disagreement because the Ninth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit agreed on the answer. But the Supreme Court took the case anyway. Uh, and what they Did is what they often do in a circumstance like this, where both parties before them agree that the court of appeals got it wrong, and that is they appointed an amicus to defend the judgment below. In this case, they appointed Paul Clement, who was the solicitor general uh, under under uh, G.W. Bush, a very respected member of the Supreme Court bar, uh, and it fell upon him uh, to defend both the Ninth Circuit's decision and the constitutionality of the board in the Supreme Court. Uh, the uh, law firm and the government made uh, arguments that were largely parallel with respect to the merits, and they, they diverged then with respect to the With respect to the merits, um, they argued, they made, they made an argument that is pretty straightforward from first principles. They say, look, Article 2 of the Constitution vests the entirety of the executive uh, function in the president. Uh, he has to be in control of the people. Uh, who are executing those functions within the government in order to fulfill his constitutional obligation to see that the laws are faithfully executed, uh, not being able to fire somebody unduly interferes uh, with that ability to exercise a constitutional responsibility. And therefore, uh, this structure, uh, one would think, just looking you know, from first principles, is unconstitutional. The difficulty uh, the government and the law firm have is that the Supreme Court has this decision called Humphrey's Executor uh, which uh, was decided in 1935 in the midst of the New Deal uh, and at the end of the conflict uh, between the President and the Supreme Court uh, over his authority to create the New Deal which entailed creating a bunch of new agencies including the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Trade Commission much like the CFPB today uh, was given responsibility for enforcing and elaborating on some pretty general laws, including laws that forbid unfair trade practices. Uh, and it also had some executive uh, responsibilities for bringing lawsuits, enforcing the law. Uh, and it had a uh, leadership composition that was similar in the sense that it had a board uh, that could not be fired except for cause. Now, the, the one difference is that the FTC has a multi-member board. And what's unusual about the CFPB is it has a single director who's only removable for cause. And in Humphrey's Executor, the Supreme Court uh, heard another similar uh, separation of powers challenge to the the Federal Trade Commission and said it was okay. Uh, They said this largely because they viewed the Federal Trade Commission as not a purely executive uh, entity, that it had these uh, responsibilities that the court viewed as quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative, In addition uh, to its executive responsibilities and as a consequence it held that the Constitution doesn't require that that agency be completely under the control of the president and that it was okay for the president uh, uh, to be limited to uh, replacing them uh, as their terms expired with the consent of the advice and consent of the Senate. So the government and the law firm in this case uh, have set about to either distinguish Humphreys' executor or to persuade the Supreme Court to overrule it if it has to. They say that Humphreys' executor is different because uh, this is a single uh, director, which they say is importantly different because when you have a multi-member board, it's much harder uh, for that agency to act arbitrarily. The other members act as a check on each other. Whereas if you have a single uh, director who can do what he wants, you're kind of left at his or her mercy uh and they also say that uh it's uh, among other things that it's easier for a, for an industry to capture an agency that has but a single person at its head and as a consequence uh you know a single member agency uh is much more problematic in terms of what the separation of powers is supposed to be doing for us which is protecting people uh from overreaching by the federal government uh, but they both say, look, if that doesn't convince you, Supreme Court, uh, then Humphrey's executor is just wrong. Uh, it was decided uh, at a time where the court wasn't uh, giving sufficient attention uh, to the first principle kinds of, of things that we argued about uh, that I discussed earlier, uh, and uh, that it doesn't uh, you know, accord with the function of separation of powers. Both then, At the point at which the government and the law firm diverge is what to do about it if the court decides that the case, uh, that that the structure is unconstitutional. Um, The law firm says, number one, actually don't decide anything other than the fact that this CID is invalid and unenforceable. Don't go on and figure out whether the entire agency has to be stricken or if there's some other limitation that you have to impose in order to remedy the violation. Just do this very narrow thing saying we don't have to comply with the CID. But they say, uh, you know, if you don't agree with that, well, then we don't think you can save the agency. Uh, you need to strike the whole thing down and let Congress go back to the drawing board. In part, one of the reasons they say that, that the court should either do that or just not reach the remedy issue at all, they think that Congress, if given the choice, uh, would do the thing that it is most often done with independent uh, agencies, which is create a multi-member board. Um, which the courts can't do. That would require rewriting the statute in a way that courts aren't authorized to do. The Solicitor General uh, takes a different view. They say that the court should strike down only the provision that limits uh, the termination of the director for cause, Uh, and they say that that's severable and that's a a modest way to deal with the constitutional problem, um, and it restores the President's power over the agency. Uh, Paul Clemente's amicus uh, for uh, defending the judgment below makes a couple of bodies of arguments. The first is a a series of attempts to get the court not to decide the case or not to decide this issue. He argues that this isn't an appropriate case uh, because there's no reason to think that what's being complained of here, this civil investigative demand, is related in any way uh, to who is leading the agency or how many members or whether that person can be fired for cause or not. He says that the court should uh, only decide this kind of issue in a case in which the president has actually tried to fire somebody uh, at will for without cause, uh, and you can be litigated in that concrete context. Assuming that the court doesn't buy that and then turning to the merits, the amicus argues that, look, nothing in the Constitution addresses the removal power of the president. And in fact, uh, the Constitution by its terms gives an awful lot of power to Congress to set up the federal government to create agencies. Uh, and this uh, is part and parcel of that authority. And in addition, uh, Congress has been creating uh, independent agencies and the Supreme Court has unanimously been approving of them uh, for a very long time. Uh, at least since the, the, the decision in 1935 and Humphreys' executor, but with respect to individual officers, uh, even before that. And Mika's points out that, look, you know, overruling Humphreys now would uh, really change a lot uh, of the way the government, how, how the government does business. He says uh, a third of the federal agencies uh, that are currently in existence could be affected, for example. And finally, and in the same vein as the argument that the court shouldn't decide this, uh, he said, look, you know, even if the court thinks that there's a serious problem here, the better way to deal with it is by giving a broad construction to what counts as the kind of inefficiency in the collective duty or malfeasance of office under which the president is authorized to remove the director. Uh, and that is a way of uh, giving the, the president greater oversight authority uh, than some might think he currently has uh, without striking down uh, the entire statute or calling into question the constitutionality of a, of a range of other agencies. So this case hasn't been argued yet. It's going to be argued in March, on March third. Um, at this point, you know, my, my kind of reaction is the fact that the court took this case without a circuit split, that the government is agreeing with a law firm are uh, bad signs for the agency. Uh, I think is also facing uh, a court that has been uh, very protective of the president's prerogatives in this area, uh, and we know, for example, what Justice Kavanaugh thinks. We recall that the Ninth Circuit affirmed largely for the reasons. Uh, of the D.C. circus prior decision. That uh, was a decision that, uh, an en banc decision that overruled the panel decision that Justice Kavanaugh, had, then Judge Kavanaugh, had written in which he said that the structure of the CFPB was unconstitutional uh, and that uh, the way to remedy it is to sever the four because provision. So the, the, the challengers have at least one vote pretty clearly in the bag, and they likely have several others uh, among the conservatives uh, who in recent cases have taken very seriously uh, these sorts of limitations on the President's uh, removal authority.
0: Thank you. That was that was a really helpful overview. Um, on the point of Justice Kavanaugh's dissent um, from the en banc decision, do you think his opinion will hold special weight given his background in this issue?
2: I think probably not. I mean, he will, having thought about it a lot, uh, he will be a voice that is given a lot of respect, but I mean, to be honest, there are a lot of justices on the court who came from the D.C. Circuit and have a lot of experience in this area. Um, And there are a bunch of smart folks who know what they think. Um, (laughs) I I don't know if it will have undue weight.
0: Uh, Understood. So coming from the other side then, um, I thought it was interesting that uh, several Democratic senators who were personally involved in the creation of the CFPB submitted an amicus brief, um, you know, explicitly laying out the congressional intent behind structuring the CFPB the way that they did. You know, they said it was to avoid corruption and industry capture of the regulators. Um, And so I'm wondering if, you know, your perspective at all is that this congressional intent argument, particularly coming from the senators actually involved in um, drafting and creating this, the CFPB will hold any weight with this court?
2: Uh, In short, no. I mean, the court in general doesn't care what legislators think about their laws. I and mean, they particularly aren't going to care what they think on a constitutional question. You know, there are some members of the court who will be sympathetic to the view that uh, independent agencies serve an important purpose. Um, you know, and the, the, the prior case that came up in this area was involved uh, ALJs and uh, in the SEC, or, or A case in this area. And Justice Breyer, for example, is very concerned that Uh, making them too accountable to the president calls into question uh, their ability to be impartial in particular cases. So somebody like him, I think, is going to care a lot about these practical issues, but there are others on the court who either don't care that much, uh, they're much more concerned about being faithful to the doctrine and to the kind of uh, understanding at the founding, or they think that, look, there are various serious countervailing practical concerns on the other side about having agencies that are accountable pretty much to no one because there is no congressman you can write to, no president uh, whose office you can call to get relief if that agency is, is acting badly.
0: Thank you. Um, all right, so we are, are moving swiftly along in the hour, so why don't we transition to the tax return case?
1: Sure. So we have here a series of cases in which the Supreme Court has decided to address Uh, when it is and how it is that you can subpoena records uh, of the president. And the general theme of these cases or the backdrop of these cases is the effort to get documents that relate to the president and his private information, uh, but not information directly from the president and not relating to the president's ongoing duties as president. And for that reason, nothing that is privileged Uh, regarding the operation of the presidency. So two of the cases arise from the Second Circuit and one from the D.C. Circuit. The first case out of the Second Circuit is called Trump versus Vance, and it comes in the criminal context, whereas the other two uh, are civil cases. The criminal case involves the Manhattan District Attorney uh, who issued a subpoena to Mazars, the accountants of the president, seeking a variety of financial records related to the president, members of the family, the Trump Organization, uh, and the like. Um, And the general context is an investigation by the Manhattan DA about the hush money payments by the president uh, to women who made accusations against him. And whether there was criminal activity in, in general in a variety of ways, That are possible including how it is that the money was sent and how it is that the payments were hidden Uh, so the subpoena was issued to mazars and the president went to district court which held that the case had to be litigated in state court because it was a state grand jury subpoena uh, but in any event that there was no immunity from the subpoena that was then appealed to the second circuit which agreed Uh, but only on the merits, rejecting the district court's view that such a claim couldn't be brought in federal court recognizing the important interests of the president uh, in being able to enforce uh, federal protections should they exist uh, from uh, burdensome subpoenas. But the second circuit said, look, this doesn't relate to the, the presidency itself. It doesn't relate to his time in office and it's not even directed at the president so it can't be that much of a distraction. Uh, In addition, it isn't a case in which there is actually a criminal prosecution of the president, it's not like the grand jury is only directed uh, at the president himself because the investigation could relate to other members of the Trump Organization, for example. Uh, The second case uh, in uh, this uh, trilogy that's going to the Supreme Court comes from the D.C. Circuit, and this one was two to one uh, and this is out of the House Oversight Committee, and it issued a subpoena, also to many stars, uh related to the president's uh, tax returns, uh, going back for some quite for quite a long period of time, uh, saying that the committee was investigating whether it is that federal ethics investigation uh, federal, federal ethics laws were sufficient or needed to be expanded or modified in some way. Um, and uh, that, was, that subpoena was upheld by uh, a panel of the D.C. Circuit, again, two to one. Uh, the third case, now back in the Second Circuit, uh, relates to a subpoena from a House committee to the president's lenders, Deutsche Bank and Capital One, uh, again seeking a variety of financial information, principally tax returns, um and also as part of an ongoing investigative investigation so all of these decisions went against the president although the, the second second circuit decision was two to one as well um and the president took them all up to the supreme court which stayed all of the rulings and granted review on a very expedited schedule and the cases will be argued uh, at the end of march with the goal of course of being able to decide the cases by the end of june and get a ruling Um, and which would come down, uh, you know, in the heat of the presidential election. So the backdrop uh, in terms of case law for these decisions is the Clinton versus Jones case and the Nixon tapes case principally. Clinton versus Jones involved civil process in federal court. Uh, Of course, the lawsuit against President Clinton by Paul Jones in which the president was required to uh, respond to discovery and sit for a deposition. So the the process was directed directly at the president himself, but it was in federal court and it was not a criminal case. Uh, The second uh, case, the Nixon tapes case, uh, President Nixon was required to turn, directly was required to turn over the tapes from the Oval Office to the grand jury that was investigating uh, the Watergate conspiracy. And so the president lost both of those cases, and the Manhattan DA and the House Committee say, well, this, these cases follow automatically from those because those are much more burdensome subpoenas that are much more of a direct threat to the presidency and much more directly involve the presidency in allegations of criminal activity. Uh, and reject the idea that uh, the fact that there might be some burden on the president is sufficient to um, create some sort of privilege against the pro, you know, uh, responding to process. Um, particularly when, as here, the subpoenas that are issued uh, aren't directed to the president uh, himself. Um, the president, on the other hand, makes a variety of arguments that deal very much with claims of burden that do sound a lot like the arguments that were made by President Clinton and rejected about how burdensome these subpoenas can be. Uh, in the Trump versus Vance case, the president specifically articulates a concern that this effort to subpoena the president can do two things. One is it can create enormous burdens because there are thousands of individual district attorneys and he paints a picture of like, what if you adopt the rule that says that you can issue subpoenas related to uh, the president's activities? Uh, and lots of politically hostile district attorneys uh, President Trump says would you know do all kinds of things to distract and burden the president the second thing the president says is look this is contrary to what he believes is the constitutional provision uh, principle that you cannot indict uh, a sitting president because that too would be enormously distracting um, and the uh, president distinguishes both Clinton versus Jones and the uh, Nixon tapes case on the ground that those at least involved a federal court uh, and federal procedures, whereas here you're dealing with a state court that would be much less uh, attentive to the protections that are uh, applicable to the presidency and to the interests of the presidency and to the possible distractions. Um, when it comes to the House cases, the, both of the, the Second Circuit and the DC Circuit House subpoenas, the president's basic view is that there just is no legitimate legislative purpose here. That the what's going on from democratically-led House committees is nothing more than an attempt to distract and burden the president and try and subject him to political embarrassment by getting very, very private information about himself and his family. And the president says that there has to be a heightened inquiry into whether it is the fact that there is something actually on the table legislatively for uh, that Congress is tackling, and uh, there has to be a real prospect that there's actual uh, legislation that's gonna be passed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's an obvious dynamic between these cases and the president's position here and what was going on in impeachment, where the president was simultaneously taking the position that you could not issue a subpoena for close advisors of the president Uh, In the course of impeachment, which is a constitutionally denominated function, obviously was being pursued with respect to the president. And so the House committee say that the president is trying to have his cake and eat it too and say that, you know, just broadly you can never subpoena uh, the president's advisors or private information related to the president. And the House here, of course, again makes the argument that these subpoenas aren't burdensome. They're not directed at the president himself. Uh, whatsoever. The president doesn't have to do anything with respect to any of these cases, so it's not a distraction to him. Uh, In terms of how these cases are likely to turn out, it's uh, uh, uncertain. If you were to put this question to the Clinton versus Jones court, it seems obvious that the president would lose them because that decision just very broadly says the president isn't above the law. Uh, We're not that concerned about distraction. If there are too many of these cases or too much burdensome discovery, the courts can step in and fix that particular problem, but there isn't a broad presidential immunity. On the other hand, in the wake of Clinton versus Jones, there's a broad sense that that decision kind of radically underestimated the prospect for distracting the president. Uh, that these things, these cases can be much, much, much more of a pain, uh, much, much more of an effort to divert the president from uh, doing his job, which is incredibly weighty uh, and requires enormous attention. Nonetheless, I do think that the distinctions that are drawn by the House and by the Manhattan DA. Uh, are likely to be successful. These cases aren't criminal prosecutions directly of the president. Uh, They aren't subpoenas directed to the president. They don't involve any activities of the president while he was the president. They don't involve any privileged communications uh, of the president. And so the president is left essentially in a position that seems to be He's just entirely unique and is not susceptible to um, civil process or criminal process. And while there are some justices of the court that are very pro-executive, Justice Kavanaugh, as Kevin talked about, from the CFPB case and other things has really indicated that he thinks that the the presidency deserves and needs special protection, I don't think that there's anything like a five-member majority on the court for that. Uh, certainly, the former liberal members of the Supreme Court aren't inclined to have such a strong view of executive power and it would be surprising to me if they couldn't find a fifth vote. That doesn't mean that the court's opinion won't be won't acknowledge the interests that are at stake as did the Clinton versus. Jones case and the Nixon Tapes case. The Supreme Court in those decisions, has a lot of you know, language about the needing to be about needing to be attentive. Uh, to the important role of the presidency and the potential burdens on the president, but in both instances rejects the kind of categorical rule that President Trump uh, asserts here. So you know, does that mean that the cases aren't a success from President Trump's perspective if he loses them? No. uh, He has managed very successfully and his lawyers have managed to hold up enforcement of these subpoenas for a long time. Even if the subpoenas do go out and are complied with in July, uh, it's not clear that there would be any effect at that point on the election certainly the manhattan da says that the subpoena there will be you know the information that's provided there will be kept entirely confidential because it's going to the grand jury um the house committee materials may well end up being uh released but you know very very late into the process of the 2020 uh, election so the president in in litigating case all the way through the cases all the way through the Supreme Court may be getting essentially what it is that he's looking for. but it would be quite surprising to me that he gets the kind of ruling that he wants even though he you know, uh, leans heavily on the fact that he has appointed multiple members of the court and then it has a, a conservative majority now.
0: Thank you. Um, in the interest of time, let's move on and do five minutes on the faithless electors case and then spend a few minutes talking about some broader trends.
2: Sure. So, uh, on the theme of an election, uh, just to remind everybody, you don't get to elect the president. Uh, You get to vote for a slate of electors who have promised to vote for uh, the presidential candidate that uh, you prefer. And so, the question in this this case, there's actually two cases, is whether those electors uh, can be removed if they don't keep that promise or punished if they violate it. So, what happened uh, in a couple of cases, is that uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in Washington and Colorado. Uh, a couple of the electors in those states nonetheless uh, attempted to or did cast their vote for somebody else, Colin Powell, Elizabeth Warren, Susan Collins, are a cast of people. Um, and uh, in Colorado, uh, that got caught and they replaced that elector with somebody else who voted for Clinton. In Washington, uh, those votes got forwarded to Congress and got counted. Uh, didn't change anything, uh, but later uh, the electors were subject to fines. And uh, in the appeals from those decisions, the Colorado, uh, the Tenth Circuit, uh, which ended up in the Colorado case, uh, said uh, that that was violated the Constitution, that the people who cast the, elects, uh, the votes in the Electoral College have a constitutional right to make up their own mind, regardless of who they were pledged to, and regardless of the popular vote in those states. And state of Washington said, no, there's nothing unconstitutional about making people uh, adhere to those promises. At issue in the case, a big question in the case uh, comes down to an interpretation of a 1952 case called Ray versus Blair in which the Supreme Court said it's fine uh, for states to require electors to pledge uh, to vote consistent with a popular vote or with the, with the party that they're affiliated with. Uh, they didn't go so far as to say what would happen if if it's constitutional to punish them or replace them if they don't. Uh, The states say, however, it's a very small step uh, from Ray to doing what they did in this case. uh, The electors uh, make an originalist argument uh, where they say that there is some evidence at the time of the founding that a lot of the the founding uh, generation thought that the electors would be exercising independent judgment in in selecting the president, uh, and they see some indications in the the 12th Amendment uh, that that the the ratifiers of that amendment also viewed uh, the electors as acting in the capacity of federal officers, uh, exercising federal functions that is outside the purview of the states to regulate. They suggest uh, that maybe Congress could do something about this problem of faithless electors, either by not counting their votes uh, when it comes time to tally the electoral college votes or doing something else, perhaps. Um, Just as an aside, you know, the elephant in the room is what in the world sense does the elector's position make? It's sort of crazy uh, to think that we go to the bother of having a popular election to pick a bunch of people whose names are frequently not even on the ballot and let them go and just decide who ought to be president. And that, interestingly enough, is a view that seems to be shared, at least by the lawyers for the electors, who have kind of forthrightly said that if they lose this case, that's not so, or if they win this case, uh, that's not so bad uh, that it makes the system crazy, because what they're really interested in is getting rid of the Electoral College entirely.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a second. How much do you expect broader critiques of the Electoral College to factor into this debate over these particular state laws, if at all?
2: Uh, You know, I... I have a hard time imagining any justice who thinks that the Electoral College is a bad idea, thinking that we ought to make it worse uh, by <laughs> the electors. Um, so I, I don't think, I think they're going to have a very hard time getting, honestly, any votes uh, in the court. It's possible that there there is a decent originalist argument that at the very founding before we had political parties, that maybe it was contemplated uh, that we were not going to directly elect the president or even kind of indirectly do it. We were going to pick these people who would pick the president, but uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then.
0: And how do you think the justices will respond, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, to being brought so squarely into the middle of such a political question?
2: Well, I mean, my sense is that they will, this, this case will only be seen as a big political thing if they rule in favor of the electors. Um, I think that if they simply say, no, it's fine, you can make them keep their promises so that they... Popular election means something. Uh, you know, it's not going to be viewed as the court being particularly political, which I think is what they're going to do.
0: That that sounds very likely. Um, okay, we just have a few minutes left, so um, let's take you know a step back. And I'd love to hear from each of you. Just kind of, you know, you're you're in the thick of it. Many of us are are viewers from the outside, um, watching as much as we can. Um, what are the most interesting trends you're seeing, both this term, but also kind of taking a step back in general, sort of the direction that the court is taking now with, you know, the current political climate and the, the new members of the court?
2: So Espinoza is a good example of a revival of interest in religious freedom, um, including, you know, there are other cases that I think you probably talked about last time, uh, about the extent to which that allows religious institutions uh, as, uh, and religious Folks uh, to get an exception to otherwise generally applicable laws, or to get, uh, you know, what some view as equal treatment, or others might view as special treatment um, that uh, other non-religious entities don't get. That seems to be a, a project the court's taken a ton of cases this term on, uh, and probably will continue to to work its way through in the in the next few terms.
1: And I would say the thing that'll be really interesting to me is in recent terms, particularly last term. Uh, the court has kind of shied away from a lot of the big hot-button issues. But this term, with the cases that we just talked about, with the gun rights case we talked about last time and several others, it has you know, stepped much more into the thick of things. And previously, the court had seemed kind of uh, to have a broad level of unanimity. And also, there were a variety of cases in which the court's conservative members splintered giving the former liberal members of the court a five-justice majority a couple of times, Justice Gorsuch went over, justice, uh, justice Kavanaugh, the Chief Justice, and whether it is that with these, uh, this higher number of hot-button issues, you're instead going to see the classical 5-4 conservative uh, progressive alignment. That's, I think, the, the big question, is how rigid do the, what do you call them blocks on the court, become or how much, you know, of of the kind of flexible dynamic is there. In the same way, there's this interesting phenomenon that it is actually the former liberal members of the court that have kind of stuck together uh, more uh, rather than uh, breaking apart, and whether it is that on some of these questions, for example, religion, uh, that even they find divisions. It'll also be interesting to see how many of these cases are just serious overreaches. Like, I suspect that the uh, presidential subpoena cases are you know, overreaches by President Trump in trying to find these sorts of immunities from uh, civil and criminal processes. It may be true of papal selectors at all. And so some of these cases that seem very, very sexy and very ideological may end up being actually pretty easy in the Supreme Court. Um, then I'm also interested to see how many of these cases really set the foundation for just fundamentally reworking a lot of how we think about the government. The CFPB case's potential is massive, both uh, potentially one-third of independent uh, organization, uh, agencies that have a single-member director that's not removable for cause, but that, that case sets the table potentially for a broader reassessment of the constitutionality of independent agencies to begin with, uh, and whether it is that we have a real sense of what's called the unitary executive Uh, And the president just gets, you know, there is an independence. You know, the president's going to enforce the laws. the president announced on Twitter the other day. He's the chief law enforcement officer of the country. Uh, And, you know, that uh, he has control over all these sorts of things. And so, too, as Kevin suggested, with respect to the Espinoza case, you could be really looking at a reworking of the um, uh, separation of church and state. So we may be talking about this term for uh, many, many more terms to come.
0: Well, thank you both so very much for the thoughtfulness and, and all of your guys' work on these important, important issues. Um, just a few kind of concluding remarks. It was really a pleasure and an honor to host this conversation. Um, I encourage all the viewers to continue to follow these cases on Scotus blog as the term progresses. As Tom and Kevin mentioned, we have a few cases that are going to be argued in the next few weeks, and those will be particularly interesting. Um, For CLE credit, if you indicated in your registration that you're barred in a state for which credit has already been approved, you'll receive your CLE certificate by email in the next month. Um, We'll also follow up by email with information about credit in in the remaining states. Um, We also have other CLE programming at Case Text, including a three-course advanced legal research certification program, which I know is of interest to to many litigators. So go to casetext.com slash CLE to learn more about that program. And then as a quick note, um, Case Text is really thrilled to partner with SCOTUS Blog. If you're not familiar with Case Text, we provide free access to cases, statutes, regulations, rules, and other legal materials to lawyers and the public, along with uh, very advanced legal research technology to over 5,000 law firms and some of the country's most accomplished litigators. Um, we're within days, actually, of announcing some pretty exciting technology that will change how many attorneys draft motions to the courts. So this is a very good time to follow us on Twitter or get on our mailing list so to learn more, uh, please do reach out to the team uh, anytime at contact at or just go to text.com to learn more. Thank you all for your time. Um, and thank you very much to Kevin and Tom. And everyone have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor. And thanks to our production team,
0: Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.